Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth conversations with the creators of great songs, from the ones you know and love to the ones you should know. Be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit us at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to Jamaica Farewell, as recorded by Chuck Berry and written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Irving Burgey. After serving in World War II, Irving Burgey attended Juilliard, where he studied classical voice. He eventually fell in love with folk music and landed a steady gig as a calypso singer at a Caribbean-themed Chicago nightclub in the early 1950s. Returning to New York, he became known as Lord Burgess on the Greenwich Village folk scene. He contributed eight songs to Harry Belafonte's Calypso album in 1956, which became the first million-selling LP in any genre, and spent an astounding 31 weeks at number one on the Billboard pop chart. Burgi went on to write the majority of Belafonte's hit albums, Belafonte Sings of the Caribbean in 1957 and Jump Up Calypso in 1961. In total, he wrote more than 30 songs for Belafonte, including the hit singles Jamaica Farewell, Deo, Don't Ever Love Me, Coconut Woman, and Island in the Sun. Thanks to his strong reputation for popularizing island music, Burgi wrote the national anthem of Barbados in 1966. In addition to Harry Belafonte, other artists who've tapped the Irving Burgi catalog include Sam Cooke, Julio Iglesias, Taj Mahal, The Kinks, Jimmy Buffett, Marty Robbins, Don Williams, Arlo Guthrie, The Righteous Brothers, Tom Rush, Carly Simon, Chubby Checker, and Patti Page. Deo continues to live on and in more recent years has been sampled by Jason Derulo in I Don't Want to Go Home and by Lil Wayne in Six Foot, Seven Foot. Burgi was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2007. You know, we've talked before about songs that seem like they were always in existence, songs that you, you kind of can't imagine having been written. And Deo is one of those songs. Yeah. I remember, you know, that f- iconic scene in Beetlejuice where they're singing Deo or, or lip syncing to Deo or whatever it is. And even as a kid watching that, I kind of had this sense that like this song wasn't made up for this movie there. There's like singing an older song. I even it, it, it had a certain weight to it just hearing it the first time um, that I even picked up on being, you know, a little kid. You know, I've never seen Beetlejuice. What? Never seen it. Wow. Yeah, I'm shocked. I, <laughs> you think you know somebody? Yeah, I pretty much just put that movie in the same category as The Nightmare Before Christmas and Edward Scissorhands, neither of which I've ever seen either. Really? Yeah. Wow. Okay, so when you were a kid, you did not gravitate toward the uh, the more macabre elements of uh, of cinema for for children. No, I didn't know there was macabre cinema for children, but I saw <laughs> I saw The Karate Kid a bunch of times. Yeah. And uh, and and I think Michael Keaton is great. Yeah. You know, actually, it's funny. Thinking about my, I was just thinking about him last week, um, back when the when the Oscars were on because he starred in Spotlight, which was Picture of the Year, mm. and last year he starred in Birdman, which was yeah. Picture of the Year, and like before that, what did, he? I mean, he was Beetlejuice, he was Batman, he was like one of the biggest stars in the world. Yeah. Then he kind of disappeared, and then Michael Keaton's on the top of the world again. He's back. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, and you know, it's not just Mr. Mom anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I um. I don't know if we're here to talk about Michael Keaton, but that just occurred to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we are here to talk about a pretty amazing man, uh, Irving Burgi. I mean, what? not only the songs, but what an incredible life. I mean, he, he's, he's 91 years old, yeah. and he's packed a lot of living into that life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, my grandfather was uh, a World War II veteran, mm. um, and, you know, but he's been 
passed away for for several years now um you don't run into a lot of world war ii veterans anymore no. they that whole generation is kind of passing on the the greatest generation you know yeah. what they call it. it it was cool to hear his stories about you know working in the in the pacific theater of the of the war even that you seem like more of the stories you hear are on the european front but to hear yeah. about him um, you know, what was the name of the road? The Lido Road. The Lido Road. Yeah, between Burma and China and 10,000 troops, you know, uh, and, you know, the, the opportunities to talk with someone who is a World War II veteran are obviously becoming increasingly rare. And I was pretty, I thought it was cool to talk to someone who'd been at Martin Luther King's March on Washington yeah. and heard the I Have a Dream speech in person. Incredible. Yeah, there's almost like a Forrest Gump element to this whole thing. I mean, the guy was <laughs> right, everywhere. Right, right. And, and then, oh, by the way, just happened to write most of the first million-selling album in history. Yeah, yeah, pretty crazy. It's, you know, Harry Belafonte is one of those artists that probably most people of our generation and younger um, don't really understand the importance as a cultural figure. Right. Um, the, the Calypso music in the 1950s and early 60s uh, was something that people had not encountered before, and it was like a full-on craze. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was it was like the hugest fad for a while in the U.S., and it's something that you know, with with time, uh, it's easy for people to to think of maybe as as novelty. Yeah. But uh, at the time, was absolutely kind of a game changer in terms of introducing even the concept of of what we would now call world music yeah. or music that originates from somewhere other than the U.S. Um, it was one of the first times in, in, in our history when people really latched on to music that to them seemed um, probably kind of foreign and, and alluring and strange, but very likable. Yeah. Um, and the the face of that was obviously Harry Belafonte, but the, the writer behind almost all of it was Irving Bergey. So you're welcome, Peter Gabriel. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. World no. music as we know it. Uh, hey, if we didn't have Irving Bergey to thank. <laughs> Who knows where we'd be? Well, let's hear from him. Yeah, absolutely. Mr. Burgey, welcome to Songcraft. Hi. Well, you grew up in New York City with a mother who was from Barbados and a father from rural Virginia. Now, it's obvious how your mother's background shaped your musical development, but what did you pick up from your dad's southern heritage? Most of the relatives that I knew at that time and growing up were on my mother's side. Okay, yeah. You know, they, they were uh, immigrants from from uh, Barbados. Okay. And so, um, while I generally knew about this, the, the, the self being a black person in a black neighborhood, you know, we, we got all of our orders from our mother. Okay. Uh, she <laughs> was in charge. She huh? was our dis- she was our disciplinarian. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So her... Her Barbados cultural influence was was then a lot stronger in the house, more so than than your father's background. Then, oh, oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Well, you wrote uh, an autobiography uh, a few years back called Deo, um, describing your formative years and and your music career. And one of the things that you mentioned uh, in your book was doing the dozens with the guys in the neighborhood. Um, and for those who don't know, describe what that is and, and talk about um, the influence that you think that might have had in terms of your ability to just come up with rhymes or, or, or clever ideas. Well, the, the dozens were, were just um, 
uh, rhymes that, you know, kids out on the street, you know, when, when kids, guys, get by themselves, they do all sorts of things. <laughs> and uh, they, they do a lot of cussing and swearing and everything. Right. And the dozens was a little game that they, they indulged in talking about their mothers. <laughs> in the worst, in the most foulest terms that you could possibly right. imagine, right. you know. <laughs> but um, but you had to rhyme it. You didn't right. Rhyme it. <laughs> right, had to be clever. And, uh, right. So it became a, a sort of an art form. Yeah, uh, 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 underground art form um, <laughs> right. in these neighborhoods, you know, <laughs> right. in the black neighborhoods. Right. So you never know what kind of bad habit as a kid is actually going to help you out as you get older and oh, get into your right, career. But, but that, that, that rhyming really um, came in handy when you were Right, right. Well, you obviously were, you know, hearing the music of Barbados. You were hearing Caribbean music from your, your mother's family. You're, you're learning, you're, you're hearing people do these rhymes, vulgar uh, <laughs> though they may be, you know, on the street yeah. with, with friends. Yeah. And also, what? Also, just general um, pop music. Yeah, you know, yeah. The radio. There was no television in those days. In radio, I knew every song by heart that, oh. that was on the radio. Yeah. And, and growing up, you know, and I used to sing them to myself all the time. Yeah, yeah. What were some of the big pop songs of the day that that you recall? Please don't talk about me when I'm gone. Oh, <laughs> right. honey, please don't. <laughs> Makes no difference how I carry on, or um, lazy bones oh. sleeping in the sun. Yeah, I expect to get your day's work done. Yeah, that this is what what was regarded as a Ken Alley. Yeah, songs I knew I knew them all by by heart. Wow, uh, the both the pop things and the things from the south, uh, the, the blues and right. all that yeah. sort of thing. That was my early training in music. Yeah. I know when you were uh, a preteen that your dad got a job as the building superintendent for the Refuge Church of Christ, and your family moved into that building for a while. Um, obviously, that that exposed you to um, a good bit of, of gospel music. Oh, yeah. I used to really rock that church, you yeah. know? Right. So I grew up on, on gospel music. Right. Well, in, in the 1940s, you were a teenager at that point and uh, going out to the dance clubs of Brooklyn and, and Manhattan with your friends on the weekends. What kind of music were you hearing then as a teenager? Oh, we heard uh, Tom Basie right. sure. and um, Benny Goodman yeah. right. and uh, Artie Shaw yeah. and uh, Tommy Dorsey. So kind of hearing a lot of the big band stuff happening at that point. Yeah, that's when all oh, that's when the big band explosion happened in yeah. the late thirties. You know? Yeah. So you you were actually getting the chance to see these bands in person, being there in New York. Oh yeah, Sunday evenings we used to go to the White Ballroom, breaking our necks from the subway <laughs> to get there before before eight o'clock for thirty five cents. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and the Savoy was it was the was the main thing. Musically speaking, at the time, you know, the yeah. Boy Ballroom. Yeah. Well, I understand that you, you went to vocational high schools for the metal and automotive trades and then went on to work as an apprentice 
uh, bus mechanic after you finish school. You're you're doing the you're doing the day job, but somewhere in there you you took guitar lessons for for a brief period and and then gave it up for several years. And I'm curious, what drew you to the guitar at that time, and and why do you think maybe you weren't quite ready to to stick with it yet? I I started taking lessons at this little company in, in Brooklyn that was just teaching pop guitar. Right. You know, very, very rudimentary course. Yeah. And I did that until I, I, I went into the Army at 18. Right. The draft went down to uh, to 18, and I volunteered wow. in order to pick my branch of service. Yeah. Uh, wow. So, I, I, so uh, from, from the age of 18 to 21... Yeah, that, in the army. So that'll that'll kind of put a, uh, a a stop to the guitar lessons when you have to leave to go to the, <laughs> oh, to yeah, go to the I, army. Oh yeah, I didn't have but 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 in the army, I really got serious about music. Hmm, right. I, I had a guy in my outfit was quite a great uh, alto sax player, Jimmy Houston, and um, he taught me the rudiments of music. Uh, right. You know the the chords and. And I was over there in in, in North Burma, um, in, uh, in in China, and we were on the Lido Road there. Wow! Yeah, building the Lido Road to connect with the old Burma Road. Yeah. So set the scene for us there. What what were you guys? You say you were working on the Lido Road. Um, like how many how many troops working on that road, and, and what were, what were you guys doing? I mean, give give us a little sense of of what that was like. Well, there were about I think there were about. There were about ten thousand men. Wow. Our company, HMS Company, um, was about uh, five hundred strong, oh. and there were about ten companies that were sent there. The Japanese had cut off the lead, the Burma Road, yeah. um, and, and that was the that was the, the up to that time the land route to China. Right. So they sent the, my outfit and about ten other outfits. Uh, to reconquer that part of the Burma Road that the Japanese had cut off. Yeah. But at, at nighttime, you you out there, you, so you had plenty of time. Yeah, right. So that's when I really got involved in music. I was, I'd be studying music even when I was doing my regular army work, and I did that for a couple, for about a year and a half. Yeah. Well, you were a long way from the Savoy Ballroom at that point, so I guess you had oh, to make, make your own music. <laughs> but but then but we organized a little they organized a little chapel they built a little chapel huh. and um, they invited me to join uh, as a, the, the choir right uh, in our outfit hmm. huh. and uh, I I just took took to it and was developing my voice I thought I imagined myself as a great singer sure uh, yeah. I was now. Nineteen twenty years old. Huh, well. it, it's interesting to think yeah. about you, young guys out there. You know, basically, you know, kind of in a life or death situation every day. Uh, you know, fighting the the Second World War, and yet music was such a priority. And it's interesting. What what did that teach you about the importance of music, and, and what it means to people in all walks of life? Um, you know, even in hard places like Burma Road. Well, music and love are the things that keep us together, hmm. whether we know it or not. Uh, everything else is a work. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's great. I mean, and, and, and that's on any level. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, and on all levels. The only thing you, the only, the only thing that's free in the world is love. Wow. <laughs> right. 
Right. You know? Yeah. You're careful. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, after uh, after three years uh, in the military, the the war came to an end. You came home in the fall of 1945, and you know went back to your job as a, an apprentice mechanic. But um, you started taking night classes at at Brooklyn College on the GI Bill. What what were you studying then? I, I the first courses I took at Brooklyn College was in uh, Italian and um, and a, and a rudimentary music course. Yeah. So why why Italian? You have to know Italian and, and classical music. Right. Sure. So I, I, I I studied. I went to school for four years, and it was all classical. There was no no pop. Right. Around this time, then that you then transferred to to Juilliard, right, to continue that serious musical pursuit. Tell us a little bit about that experience and what you kind of hoped to do with a music education once you got there. Well, I, I had no choice because I was I came from a very poor family. I mean, we were really dirt poor. Yeah. But, but what they call poor respectable. You know, we had, <laughs> had a clean house and, and we would go to church on Sunday, Sunday school or something like that, you know. Yeah. But um, I had no money. So, But when I came out of the army, I had saved a few dollars. Right. And I, a few dollars and, and I... Did a little light rum running over there, close to a thousand dollars, which was like a fortune in those days. Yeah. And I went up to Juilliard, and I took the entrance examination, and I passed it. Because I, I had learned quite a bit. Well, obviously, I mean, Juilliard is a is a very prestigious school, and you were learning um, formal singing. You were you were immersing yourself in, in in classical music, singing in Italian and and in German and in French. And but in 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 the late nineteen forties, um, you started in addition to that, get kind of getting into to folk music. What what drew your interest to to folk? Well, black people probably. More, more accustomed to folk music than anybody else because he's hmm. from the jail houses to the to whatever kind of to kind of work it was working the blacks did all the work yeah yeah and they and they, and they you know they slung their hammers and their shovels in time and sang songs. We had a definite place in folk music. Now, were you actually? I, I know after you spent some time at Juilliard, you went out to the uh, the University of, of Tucson in Arizona for a while to continue your voice studies. You're you're obviously being immersed in folk music at this time. Were you at this point in your life starting to get into writing your own material yet? No, no. Okay. I I was still studying and learning songs. Even though the classics was was my main thing, but then while while I was in the classics, this is when this whole folk thing came on, right, and right. I realized that I, I probably was not going to make it. I, I wasn't going to put uh, Caruso out of business. <laughs> 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 well, I know that late in 1949, you headed out to L.A. to kind of continue your voice major studies at USC. So you're majoring in the classics, but you're spending your time, you know, with this passion for folk music. Was there ever kind of a conflict between the two? Did your professors approve of your folk music passion, or did they want you to focus more? No, but they couldn't, could not have cared less. <laughs> 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 it was a, but but by then, by, by the time I came out of uh, from Southern Cal, 
and came back to New York. Um, I, I had picked up the guitar, learned some, some few chords and things like that, and I was auditioning for spots here in New York All right. folk center. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that whole uh, Greenwich Village scene, the, the whole folk scene, Washington Square Park and those hootenannies, I mean, that was really getting going at that time, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. That was right in the middle of it. Yeah. Wow. You know? Well, tell us about the, the very first time that you met Harry Belafonte. I met, my first time I met Harry was at Camp Menacing okay. back in 1950, hmm. which was a big camp in Fort Jervis, New York, during the summer. I got involved with, with the camp. Okay. And I was being being what I know about music and cheerleading and all that sort of stuff. I was a great counselor. Yeah, right. Harry was a, he had a, he had a gig at one of the black resorts up that right. way, right outside of Port Jervis. Anyway, they they had they have a they had a on Saturday nights. One Saturday night in the month, they would have a birthday party hmm. for the camp. Right. And they asked me and Harry to do a song. Oh. And I, I, I would play the guitar and Harry would, and I would sing. Right. And we'd take the song, John Henry. Okay. Uh, which was a big, big uh, folk song at the sure. time. And I ordered it. Things went wild. You wow. Know? <laughs> <laughs> that was our first meeting. Wow. wow. But then we, we, we met again. Four years later. Right. Before you reconnected with Harry, uh, in late 1951, you moved to Chicago and eventually got a job as a Calypso singer at a Caribbean-themed nightclub called the Blue Angel. Were you already interested in Calypso music before that time? Yeah. I, I, not only was I interested, but I had done quite a bit of research. Oh, wow. You know, the Calypso, at that time, was just beginning to get a, a little novelty, you know? Right. Okay. After six months at the at the Blue Angel in Chicago, you returned to New York, and you put together a group with with Herbert Levy on penny whistle and Ozzy Baez on maracas and, and Al Lindo on bongos, um, and you guys recorded an album for the for the Stinson label in 1954 called uh, Folk Songs of Haiti, Jamaica, and Trinidad by Lord Burgess's Calypso Serenaders. Now, how did you come to be known as Lord Burgess? That's Lord who gave you the name. Oh, okay. Uh, from the Village Vanguard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's Lord Burgess. Um, yeah, Irvin Burgess, huh? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Lord Burgess. <laughs> right. <laughs> He gave me the name. Nice. It looked like that. Hey, wanted to give you a little more of a showbiz flair kind of name, huh? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Now, were the songs yeah. on that record, were they arrangements of traditional songs, or were these songs that you were writing yourself? Uh, most of them were songs. They were traditional songs. But, you know, in the, those days, they, they didn't have any very few real songs. They were just... Right. The little little things, you know, um, little melodies, like, you know. Yeah. And so uh, a lot, so a lot of the material had to be made into songs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but 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 they projected certain ideas that you could use. Right. You know? Yeah. So they truly were folk songs in the purest sense of the word. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But um, 
the first big song that I've had, which is still my biggest song, Dale, was originally a Banana Lotus song. Wow. Right. In the Caribbean, in Jamaica. Probably could could have been back as far as the time of slavery, for that matter. Right. Wow. Yeah. And was, I took it and uh, made, made a little story out of it. Right. You know, yeah. work all night on a drink of rum, back banana till the morning comes. Uh, and so forth, and uh, I, I had a copyright. Well, what I did, though, with my music, when the, when Belafonte came to me about doing something, I had done had some experience of helping some guy get a, uh, a copyright from the Library of Congress. Right. And I knew that you could copyright a song of what they call pre, pre-production copyright. Okay. Right. So um, when I was doing this album for Belafonte, they decided they were supposed to do a uh, a John Henry show for Colgate Comedy Hour, which which was then bucking the Ed Sullivan show. Right. Taking on Um, the giant there. Yeah, Ed Sullivan was was the big, 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 big thing. Right. So they were trying to put together a few artists, and so they gave Harry a 20-minute segment on, on one of their shows. And so they, one of the songs was Gale, okay. and, and the program was an absolute smash. Yeah. So because you had, had sort of carved out a niche for yourself as as Lord Burgess doing this uh, island music, um, is, is that why Belafonte reached out to you when he decided he was going to do this this particular type of music? Oh yeah, uh, no, no. When he when he heard when he heard what the, some of the songs, yeah. he he was in, in San Francisco and his writer Bill Attaway is the one who discovered me. Mm-hmm. And he told Harry when he heard my songs, he called Harry and said, "Harry, we're not doing the John Henry show that we talked about. <laughs> right. We're going to wow. do a new show on the Caribbean." Wow. So when <laughs> when, when Belafonte came back to New York. I met Belafonte and I heard these songs, and he agreed with them. Yeah, wow, yeah. So I think in about six weeks the whole thing was done. Wow. And um, during that time I wrote uh, a couple of songs. I do adore her, and um, uh, I had written Jamaica Farewell was the first song I ever wrote. Wow, wow. Uh, 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 which was mine. Right. And a um, song called Dolly Dawn. Right. Uh, which was after, uh, after a singer. There was a singer, a white popular singer named Dolly Dawn. Right. And I called this, uh, called this song Dolly Dawn. I, I had never met her or anything. Right. But I imagined her doing this. And I said, when Dolly hears them sound the drum, up she jumps and she hollers, here I come. Because <laughs> yeah. she's going to dance, she's going to sing. He's going to cause the raptors to rain, right. you know. <laughs> and, yeah, so I own eight of the 11 songs on the album. Because she's going to dance, she's going to sing, she's going to cause the raptors to ring. She's going to dance, she's going to sing, she's going to cause the raptors to ring. She's going to dance, she's going to sing, she's going to cause the raptors to ring. She's going to dance, she's going to sing, she's going to cause the raptors to ring. So what happened? 
of course, was that that based on the success of of that show, of that Colgate hour that that uh, Harry appeared on, um, he decided he wanted to record an entire album uh, with this island theme. Um, And of course, you know, now we know 1956's Calypso album was one of the biggest albums of all time. It was the the first LP in any genre to sell a million copies. Stayed at number one in Billboard for for 31 weeks. It stayed in the top 10 for more than a year. Um, And the majority of those songs, as you say, eight of the songs were were written by you, including uh, Jamaica Farewell, which was also a a top 20 pop single. Down the way where the nights are gay and the sun shines daily on the mountaintop. I took a trip on a sailing ship And when I reached Jamaica I made a stop But I'm sad to say I'm on my way Won't be back for many a day My heart is down My head is turning around I had to leave a little girl In Kingston Town um, Now, you mentioned Jamaica Farewell a moment ago Tell us about the, the origin of, of that song Tell us about writing that well, Jamaica Farewell is, is the thing about Jamaica Farewell is, is, is the thing what made it one of the most popular songs. There's only three chords in the song, <laughs> you know. Right. right. <laughs> and and the, the the chords of the verse is the same as the chords in the chorus. Nice. Right. Yeah. Keep it simple. It's um. One, four, five, and back to one. Right. Yeah. And that was it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> that, that was the whole song. Right. So anybody could learn three chords. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And, and it was so simple, but it was a beautiful song. Yeah. It was yeah. one of those things. It really, Harry loved it. It became his theme song. So probably the song that's best known from that Calypso album is Deo, which was a top five pop single for six weeks in 1957. It was also a top 10 R&B hit. Live six foot, seven foot, eight foot bunch. You know, it's another one of those songs that where the inspiration came from an old Jamaican folk song. So tell us how you first uh, encountered the the original pieces of that song that, that inspired it and how you shaped it into what has become one of the best known songs of all time. Well, actually, it, it, it was nothing really to shape into because it, the song is so simple that it's not even funny. It's only the of the song. Right. You know, but, 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 but the idea that has completely my own, my own idea of thinking. Right, right, yeah. Why do you think that Calypso album was such a groundbreaking success? The whole idea of Calypso, it was the only time that people ever heard anything with that kind of a rhythm was it was in a couple of New York nightclubs. Hmm. Nobody ever paid any attention. Nobody ever went to the Caribbean. But you see, we're talking about 1950 and, and 
the airplanes just started flying to the Caribbean after well, the war, you know. Sure, right. Yeah, right. So by 1953, the people began to start going to the Caribbean. Yeah. And and when they heard this music, it was a tremendous attraction to them. Hmm. So people were kind of hungry for this music because they were experiencing, they were vacationing. It, it was it was after the war. And, and, and prior to that, the West Indies, um, they were primarily concerned with with double entendre. Right. All it is, many, many of their songs was about somebody being in bed with somebody else. You know, yeah. It's <laughs> what they call double entendre. Right, <laughs> right. In a nightclub for tourists, primarily. Right. Uh, but when I, when, when I wrote, I, I was influenced by the, actually I was, strongly influenced by the civil rights movement in the United States, mm. Mm. which was going on at the same time, right. you know, in the, in, the, in, the, in the early 1950s yeah. uh, uh, in, 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 in the United States, and in New York, and in the village, and all that, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, so I started, uh, nobody, they really probably didn't have much of a foundation, because it was a, co- it was a colony. Right. It was a colony of former slaves that were um, that really were just developing, beginning to develop a culture. Sure. But but I had a lot more going with me because I was so heavily involved in the in the in the cultural movement here, the black movement. Right. You know. Yeah. The civil rights movement in America. Sure. Because of the Second World War, all of those colonies became independent countries. Right. Right. And the thing that's so, I was concerned about the freedom. That's why I wrote a song like "Island in the Sun." This mm. is my island in the sun, where my people have toiled since time begun. Right. I may sail on many a sea, but shores will always be home to me. Yeah. Wow. I started writing things about people. Yeah, and, and you know, even talking about you know the the racial change that was happening, the change, the political change that was happening in the islands. Um, Harry Belafonte starred in a film called Island in the Sun in, in 1957. That was the first movie with a with an interracial romance between the lead stars. And of course, you you know, as you're as you're talking about, you wrote that that title song. And I've heard you say that that you consider that song like one of your your finest one of the songs that you're most proud of um and, and i assume that is because you were you know using the opportunity of writing commercial music but also saying something socially at the same time right this which which was not being said hmm. in the caribbean yeah. I, I said um when morning breaks the heaven on high i lift my heavy load to the sky sun comes down with that burning glow that mingles my sweat with the earth below. Mm. I see women on bended knee, cutting cane for her family. Mm. I see man at the waterside, casting nets at the surging tide. You know, yeah. those are universal, beautiful uh, words. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I just have a little overcome. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me a minute, will you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, there's there's a lot of lot of beautiful and significant memories there. I'm sure. Yeah. As morning breaks, the heaven on high, I lift my heavy load to 
through the sky Sun comes down with a burning glow Mingles my sweat with the earth below Oh, island in the sun Built to me by my father's hand All my days I will sing in praise of your forest Waters your shining sun I understand that that when it came to kind of the business side of all this and getting the the proper credit for these songs, that the company kind of didn't fulfill their obligations. Uh, is that is that correct? Yeah. Well, well, well. The thing, the thing was that they, 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 they never mentioned me in the liner notes. Wow. Hmm. They never mentioned my name. Right. Uh, on, on on all three of the albums. Hmm. So. It's, to give the idea that Belafonte wrote the uh, that he wrote the songs, the people get the idea that he wrote. If you walk in the street and ask, hey, who time who wrote Dale? Who yeah. wrote Nigel? They would say Harry Belafonte. Right. This is sixty years later. Wow, and that's kind of part of that star vehicle, I guess, to make him a little bit of a bigger name. To right. now you got it. You got yeah. it. Yeah. But in the long run, the thing was strong enough, even with that, even with that keep me going. Yeah. I have lived on my reputation as a writer mm. and it has kept me alive and well for sixty years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Right. Yeah. Well, in 1957, Harry released the LP Belafonte Sings of the Caribbean, which went to number three on the pop album chart. And this album included, you know, a couple of the songs that you had written for the Island of the right. Sun. Right, Island, Island um, and the Sun was in that album. Right, right. And, and also eight more of your songs. I mean, you mm-hmm. wrote Don't Ever Love Me and, and Coconut Woman, which was, you know, a top 25 pop hit. Coconut Woman is calling out. And every day you can hear her shout. Coconut woman is calling out. And every day you can hear her shout. Get your coconut water. Oh, and it's good for your daughter. Oh, Coco got a lot of iron. Oh, Make you strong like a lion. Oh, a lady tell me the other day. No one can take her sweet man away. I asked her what was the mystery. She said coconut water and um, rice. What can you tell us about Coconut Woman? Coconut Woman was based upon an existing song, and I I I I, um, I supplied lyrics to right. the song. Yeah, yeah that's, that's that's one that was in the was in the public in the public domain. Mm, right. Okay. Um, in in the Caribbean. Well, you know one of, one of the things I'm I'm curious about you you talk about. Um, uh, you were really committed to studying uh, folk music. You were committed to studying the music of the islands um, and researching. You, you've used the word research a couple times. You know, today, yeah. research uh, means you go on your computer and you type in a few words. Um, now, right. in this, exactly. when you were doing, you know, talk a little bit about, about what your research looked like because it was obviously much more involved. Actually, my research goes goes back to when he, even before I was a writer, because you know, in the in the, in the West Western community, even in New York, hmm. you know, there were a lot of West Indians in New York. You know, yeah, they used to be West Indian boat rides up the Hudson, right? 
and um, Western New Dances in the ballroom, Brooklyn and Manhattan and wherever. There were Western New Churches and, uh, you know, the Western New Communities right. in South Brooklyn and so forth where, where I was born. Yeah. All of this sort of, like, come together for the, for the first time. Yeah, yeah. Release. Right. You know, nobody ever thought about writing this. And, uh, and, 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 and it was also, I, I, even with Belafonte, I have to give him a certain amount of credit because Belafonte was the one that was able to, his charisma. Right. Yeah. So yeah. He was one of the most handsome people, you know, and, and people just flocked to him. <laughs> right. So, so right. that, that, that didn't do me any harm. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, one of the things I, I, I find very interesting is, is that in the wake of, of Belafonte's success, the, the popularity of, of Caribbean music obviously helped further boost tourism to the islands. And a lot of these uh, islanders actually then learned your songs from the Belafonte albums, which they then sang to, to tourists. And, you know, obviously Caribbean folk music had heavily influenced your life as a commercial songwriter, but then here's your commercial songwriting that's turning around and, and influencing the indigenous musicians. That must have been a pretty surreal thing to experience. You're exactly right. Hmm. That's what. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. And, wow. um, the, the, you know, the, the, the Caribbean music wow. is me. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. Right, absolutely. I'm the, I'm the one. That's amazing. <laughs> right. It it all goes back to Irving Burgey. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, exactly. And and it kept kept going. In 1961, Harry Belafonte returned to that format that had made him so successful with the Jump Up Calypso LP. And and like the the Sings of the Caribbean album before it, that one went to number three on the pop album charts. And once again, you had written the majority of the songs. One of the highlights of that album is the closer, Angelina. I've been from San Jose up to Baffin Bay, and I've rode out many a storm. Yes, sir, Angelina, Angelina. Please bring down your concertina and play a welcome for me Cause I'll be coming home from sea Angelina, Angelina Please bring down your concertina and play a welcome for me cause Oh, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, that was the most popular song in the album, Angelina yeah. Angelina, please bring down your concertina and play a welcome for me Cause <laughs> I'll be coming home from sea And that... That was picked up. What really, besides one of the stories about that, it became a big hit in Germany because there was a there was a a woman who played the yeah accordion, and she was named her name was Angelina. So when the song came out, and then and she sang it. It oh, went nice. to number one. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's some perfect timing in the German market for you there. <laughs> right. Well, another one of your songs on the Jump Up Calypso LP is is Kingston Market. And I bring that up because uh, one of the groups that was heavily influenced by Belafonte and, and you know, by extension, your songs, was the folk group uh, the Kingston Trio. And they took their name from the Jamaican capital of Kingston, and they wound up Recording several of your songs, including The Sane, The Wanderer, and El Matador. I will be no matter what, Torero Fino. She'll dream tonight of me. Ole, ole, 
And I understand that that those songs were a reflection of an extensive trip that you took after the success of the first Calypso album. Um, tell us about that trip and, and how it impacted your songwriting. Just seeing the world. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Because I, I could write anywhere. Right. And, um, and all I had to do was, you know, it worked out so that every two years I would uh, furnish Harry with an album. Right, yeah. right. You know? Yeah. The first one in 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 fifty five, the second one in fifty eight, and the third one in in in, in nineteen sixty. Right. Right. Well, with songs like El Matador, I mean, were these were some of those type of songs inspired by your travels? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. As, as a matter of fact, I, I share the copyright on that with um. Hmm. I forget the girl. Forget the girl's name now. But I share share that copyright. Right. Ole, 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 viva, el matador. Yeah. yeah. But, but I did the same. This is my original. The same, yeah. It's a beautiful little song. Yeah. And um, and the Wanderer um, is very highly regarded. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Kingston Trio. Well, in the late 1950s, you joined the Harlem Writers Guild alongside folks like like Maya Angelou, and it was oh, yeah, in that group right. that you started developing uh, a musical, The Ballad for Bimshire. Um, tell us about right. the inspiration for that and why you decided to, to take on the challenge of writing something for the stage. Yeah, I wanted to take on a, a bigger thing. Hmm, you know? Right. I, I was going to write this show about my mother. Hmm. Okay. And then... As I was working on it and working on it, um, it, 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 it just left my mother and went to a um, girl right. that became the heroine of the piece, okay. who was, who was a Barbadian, uh, raised on a sugar plantation. But um, uh, I, I went to, I, I moved to Jamaica. I spent about three months in Jamaica. In different right. places, working on that and writing, and um, it was done in New York uh, in 1963, right, off Broadway, hmm. and uh, and it was it, that was also during the height of the civil rights movement, right, and so the whole the black community itself was um, rallied to it, the different churches and everything, you know, because to go to see it, you know, to, right. to help right. support it. Yeah, you know, well, you know, you, you you mentioned that about the civil rights movement in '63, and I understand that when you guys were rehearsing for the launch of that show, you guys actually took a break to attend the March on Washington and heard Dr. King give his "I Have a Dream" speech. I've never talked to anybody that was there. I, what was that like? Oh, that was a tremendous affair. I mean, that's that's one of the landmark affairs in Bergen. Absolutely. Um, it was a terrific thing. We were in rehearsal um, that summer. And uh, for the show to open in October, and um, we the whole cast, you know, they they they, they um, Bayard Weston was, was, was working for the NACB, and he organized the buses to 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 go to Washington. You know, right? It was quite an operation. Wow! And so, my whole cast, we 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 took off from, for the weekend. No rehearsal. They all went to Washington for the. Um, March in Washington, wow. and when when, when um, Martin Luther King made his, that famous address, yeah, amazing. Oh yeah, I was right there. Wow. 
<laughs> well, the, the amazingness of your story just continued in 1966 when you were asked to write the lyrics to the Barbados National Anthem. How did that come about? Barbados independence was coming up, you see? Yeah. Uh, um, in 1966. So the, the people there, many of them unofficially asked me if I would, I would tackle the, uh, the Barbados National Anthem. Wow. And I was very well known in Barbados because of the, the things that I had done previously. Sure. And um, I, I, I felt I felt honored that I was even asked. Yeah, quite an honor. Yeah, amazing. So, anyway, I I I submitted it and um, forgot about it for a few months, and then I got a telephone call from them and told me that they had decided to have a competition uh-huh. for the national anthem, which I thought was fair. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And but then in the competition it was still selected as number one. <laughs> you won. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Well, that that same year, uh, 1966, you made uh, a, a now out of print LP for Buddha Records called Calypso Agogo as Lord Burgess. You uh, played a, a concert at Carnegie Hall the following year, so people were starting to get to know your name. You know, they they had known your your songs um, and and started to get to know your name, um, and you really became this um, champion uh, of that music and. Um, you put out a West Indian songbook in the early 70s, and and that sort of became the launching pad for a Caribbean Day-themed program that you, that you did in the public schools for a number of years where you would go and, and, and sing these songs with the kids. Now, this might be sort of a, a strange question, but when I look at your life and career, there's this educational theme that runs throughout your story from you being a a young man pursuing independent studies and and doing your own research. You know, you are teaching songs to kids at summer camp as as a counselor. You're educating people about folk songs and and all the way to these school programs. And when I look at your career, obviously you're you're a phenomenal songwriter. Um, I also have kind of come to regard you as as something of an educator as well. Uh, What are your thoughts on that? I've always been a teacher. Yeah. I've, uh, you know, I, I, everywhere I went, I, I would organize, I organized the, um, the, the, the Caribbean House Festival Choir oh. here in, in Brooklyn, which, which was at almost 100 people. Oh. That I did that for BWIA back in 1970. Right. And, and we, did, we did two performances at the, um, at the Academy of Music in Brooklyn. We would perform it each year. And we appeared for all different organizations all the time. I was, I was, I was ahead of that. I, I, yeah. I, I conducted the rehearsals and everything else. Yeah, <laughs> and it's amazing to see the way you know songs, you know, uh, survive throughout the decades and and even grow. Um, and for many folks of our generation, we kind of got to know the song Deo through that classic scene in the in the movie Beetlejuice from 1988. How did they end up picking your song for that scene? That song was thirty years old when Beetlejuice was made. Right. It was only thirty, thirty-two years old, yeah. and it was like it never that was came out for the first time. <laughs> right, right. Because because it, it was an it was an emotion picture, and every kid and uh, and most most of the adults in the world have seen that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that, that movie. Yeah. That thing was it was 
it's phenomenal yeah. what happened with that, with that Beetlejuice thing. Right. You know, it put that thing on the world map. Yeah. Like it never came out before. It's like you had a hit all over again. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's, I, it's a phenomenal hit. <laughs> you know, right. it was twice as big as the original, frankly. Yeah. Well, in that song in particular, I mean, I know in in the '90s there was a, a big German TV commercial campaign that used Deo that was was very lucrative for you, um, and, and it it continues to to crop up. Jason Derulo had a number fourteen pop hit in 2011 with "Don't Want to Go Home." <laughs> It's a big, big song in, in Japan, yeah, yeah, Germany, you name it. Anywhere, it, 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 it was the same thing that broke big all over the world. Do you get personally involved in deciding how and when the, the song will get used for certain things? No. No? No. <laughs> um, because Belafonte was, was the head of Clara Shari Music. They administered the copyright right. yeah. for the first 28 years. Hmm. So that's why they kept they kept, they kept my name so quiet. Yeah, interesting. After the first twenty eight years, Clara and Sherry lost the rights. Right. I then signed up with Mill Token, Sherry Lane. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Sherry Lane music, and we had a beautiful thing because four years after after I signed with Mill Token, that was when the Beetlejuice thing came out. Right. Yeah. Okay. I'm in the third copyright. Now the BMG. Okay, right. I got some pretty big plans for this year. Yeah, I'm planning to uh, make a movie out of out of my song that I did back in uh, 1963. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I think okay. I think I think both 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 politically and and socially and creatively, it's a song it, that that the kind of movie because of what's been happening in the world. Mm. Would be just the thing to really, to really hit big at yeah. this point. So yeah. that's what I'm. That's what I'm in the process of doing now. Wow, it's inspiring to talk to a 91 year old who has has proven himself time and again with with his contributions culturally and artistically to our society and you know you're not you're not wanting to put your feet up and say I'm done you you're still doing things you're still conceiving ideas and creating and and it's just really inspiring to us to see decades later that that artistic spark the social uh, awareness spark uh, all that is is so much alive and well yeah. in you as it as it was all those years ago and so it has been a, a real treat for us to speak with you today and and just a real inspiration we thank you so much for for doing this and for your time yeah thank you well well thank you for having me believe me it's been a pleasure thank you for listening to find out more about our guests stream episodes get a sneak peek at upcoming interviews or to contact us with your feedback visit songcraftshow.com while you're there sign up for our mailing list so you can stay up to date with everything that's happening in the Songcraft universe. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash songcraftshow. And if you enjoy what we're doing here at Songcraft, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review on iTunes, which truly helps potential listeners discover these conversations. And we look forward to getting together with you again for the next episode of Songcraft.